Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? If you haven't already, please consider picking up a copy of my book, In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants. There are so many great things in there for people beyond just those who are interested in the botanical world. I really appreciate everyone that's chimed in to tell me they're enjoying the book. It means the world to me. And if you haven't picked it up yet, it's available wherever books are sold. Once again, that's In Defense of Plants, an exploration into the wonder of plants. But today we're taking a look about one group of plants in particular, the cacti. You may think of cacti as these stalwarts of the desert, really well protected, just ultimate survivors of the plant world, but they don't do it alone. As hardy as some cacti can be, they still have plenty of mutualistic interactions out there, and that's exactly what we're talking about today. Joining us is Stefan Berger, or as you may know him from his Instagram page, The Cactus Explorer. Stefan is a lover of all things cacti, and he owns and operates Cactus Explorer Tours and Consulting, which helps to expose people from around the world to just how amazing cacti can be in their native habitat. And today we're going to talk about some of the amazing mutualistic interactions cacti have with other types of life on this planet. And let me tell you, this is a deep well to drink from. We're only going to scratch the surface today, but it's a fascinating jumping off point for people that have any curiosity in what cacti are doing. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Stefan Berger. I hope you enjoy. All right, Stefan Berger, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while, but it's great to have you back on. For those that have not heard our previous episode many, many years ago, uh, let's start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Okay, so yeah, um, I'm an Australian naturalist, but uh, I actually live here in Chile, so I've got a family here in Chile, and uh, well, yeah, I I love it here, you know. Um, Obviously, I'm really into cacti and all kinds of other desert plants, so in my spare time, I get to go around and look at all that stuff. So that's uh, one of the other main advantages of, of being here. Um, and I've got into tourism, actually, over the last uh, few years, although uh, the pandemic's <laughs> kind of uh, brought that to a, a bit of a screaming halt. Uh, but that, uh, that was going quite well. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, I've still been keeping engaged uh, by doing writing. So I've just actually done a piece for the British Cactus and Succulent Journal and another piece for the uh, American Cactus and Succulent Journal, as well as doing some nice. online presentations. So that's uh, that's been pretty cool and kept me engaged in the hobby. <laughs> that's great. And where did this all begin for you? I mean, you know, you're from Australia, you've got a great flora over there, but it seems like cacti have really kind of taken over your life in a big way. Uh, has that always been the case or is that more of a recent thing as, uh, you know, you've grown up? Well, when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and they had a really massive landscape garden. And actually, my grandfather had a small cactus garden. And and ever since I was a boy, they really caught my attention because they were just so different to Hmm. anything else in their garden, but also anything else in our native uh, flora. So the spines actually always really appealed to me. Hmm. Uh, I mean, the flowers are obviously beautiful too, but... um, yeah, I just really got into all of the different exotic forms and uh, and even I learned that my grandma had some zygo cactus, which I never thought was a cactus. <laughs> you know, um, I remember starting to make those connections and actually bought me a cactus encyclopedia because he noticed I had, um, you know, a pretty keen interest in them. And then I started to identify them and that led to, you know, looking at their country of origin and getting out atlases and, yeah, looking at the geography and the countries where they come from so you know i i always had dreamt about coming uh, to the americas but especially south america the south american cacti uh, really got me and they actually do really 
well a lot of them in the australian climate too so that's uh that's kind of how it all began i mean i was i was really interested there for for a few years when i was younger and then it kind of drifted when i I uh, left high school and started working, you know, sure. I actually worked in engineering for like seven years. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And then um, I got sick of that. And then I went, actually went to university and studied uh, health sciences or applied sciences. And I did an uh, undergraduate degree in that. And then uh, when I finished that, I basically, um, you know, bought a one-way ticket to South America <laughs> and started traveling. And yeah, pretty much, uh, yeah, just... Uh, you know, uh, it's led me to here. So <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, pretty much how the story goes. That's great. And I love, you know, stories of passion that have turned into like complete and utter obsession that, you know, you've pursued now. <laughs> and it's it's truly like inspiring to see people following their dreams. And the fact that it's all centered around this this family of plants that are just so strange is is really cool. It's It's very uplifting to hear these sorts of stories of people doing what they want to do and being happy with it. Yeah, it's just it's all about that passion, you know, and about that curiosity uh, as well. So actually coming and you know knowing them in habitat has been completely different to, hmm. to growing them in cultivation. You know, it's uh, it's led me to think about these plants in a in a completely different way, and is actually part of an ecosystem. So that's that's also been really uh, mind blowing in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. And I mean, I grew up here in the States and I'd seen cacti occasionally, you know, mostly opuntias growing up the hardy ones. But, you right. know, cacti is something that even the least plant friendly person out there can identify this cliche sort of lump with spikes coming off of it in a pot, though. You know what I mean? They're, they're generally speaking, yeah. unless you're from an area where cacti are native and grow wild you see them as sort of these disembodied specimens that don't really put them into context. And uh, yeah, they're cool in pots. I love growing cacti. I have a few species of my own, but to see them in the wild doing what they're doing is it's, it's so alien. It just seems so strange. And, you know, some of them are huge. Others are small. It seems like even within cacti, there's just so much diversity to explore that I can see why you've kind of devoted your life to this family of plants. Yeah, it just seems never ending, you know, and I've got a, a whole long list of places that I'd love to go and visit, you know, and even <laughs> living over here in Chile, you know, I still haven't even seen all of the uh, Chilean cacti yet, you know, I mean, I've done some trips to Argentina, Peru, but it just seems to be never ending. And then, um, you know, I sort of realized that it would probably take me, you know, an entire lifetime to actually, <laughs> you know, really sort of discover it you know, as much as I can, obviously. So it's pretty incredible. But um, yeah, basically, uh, I was reflecting, uh, I actually listened to our first podcast, uh, you know, about a month ago. Nice. And so, yeah, it was really cool. I was like, well, I can't believe that was three years I ago. Know. But um, it, yeah, in that, I was talking about how I really noticed that cacti love to grow in rocks, you know, they really kind of um, colonize those those rocky terraces and, and rocky habitats, you know, and I mean, a lot of it comes down to, you know, seedling germination and how they actually get established in these places uh, in the first place. So, you know, I talked about them like, uh, you know, germinating in, in rocky crevices and that kind of has a bit of a terrarium effect and holds <laughs> on to the moisture, you know, uh, in the desert because the rocks act as a water collection point, which, you know, trickles down into those little, um, those little crevices. Right. And, they also help to, you know, protect uh, a, a cactus seedling is really vulnerable. You know, it doesn't really, it doesn't have very defensive spines. It also can easily get eaten by a, by a larger herbivore or something like that. So they're also protected right down in there. But, you know, the more I was walking around, especially on the edge of the Atacama Desert here, actually, where it is just so dry, you know, you can come across cacti growing at the side of a really big, massive uh, granite slab of granite or a boulder hanging out of the side of those big <laughs> rocks and it's just crazy, you know, and you just have to think like, you know, where are they getting stuff like nitrogen and other essential trace elements and minerals and things like that from. Right. I mean, of course, I've got all of their classic adaptations like uh, succulent stems, camp photosynthesis, special epidermis characteristics and all of that. But um, I started looking into it even more because, you know, it just seems so crazy how they could grow in these really inorganic places. So actually, they've got this mutualistic uh, relationship with bacteria, archaea, and even fungi that live on and in their roots and also in their stems and even in the fruits and seeds. And so the more you look into it, it's really 
a, a complex association with all kinds of different uh, uh, genre of uh, all those uh, different uh, microbes living in there. Basically, the the bacteria that live on the roots facilitate nitrogen fixation wow. by taking it directly from the atmosphere. And as a byproduct of their metabolism, they actually uh, secrete organic enzymes, which uh, dissolve the rock and so do the what? fungi that also what? live on the roots too. Yeah. And so like they are actually like dissolving the rock and allowing minerals like phosphorus and potassium and other trace elements to be absorbed by the cactus. And because it's a, a really well-functioning symbiosis, the cactus actually provides the bacteria and fungi with, with carbon and water and probably sugars too that it produces in photosynthesis. And, you know, the acids are producing the, the enzymes from the water and nutrients from the cactus. So it's just really crazy. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> yeah, when you reached out and asked if I'd be interested in this topic, I was like, oh, hell yeah, <laughs> please. Because, you know, I, I'm a plant fanatic, same as you, but it sounds like oftentimes we can kind of take just the plants at plant value. You know, the, the old adage, seeing the forest for the trees or whatever it was. But yeah, I, I think more than other plants, you, you look at a succulent like a cactus, especially some of the larger species, and you think there is a strong, independent plant. It doesn't need no one to help it through. It got this plant you know, to where it is on its own, but that doesn't sound like that's really the case. I mean, cacti have very vulnerable periods of their lives, especially early on. You know, I remember going out to the Sonoran Desert for the first time and seeing all these saguaro seedlings largely clustered underneath the shade of other trees. So they need that help early on. And then they become these large, very robust uh, specimen plants. But it sounds like through their whole lives, it's not this independent thing. They're not operating in a vacuum. They need other organisms to survive because they're growing under such harsh, unforgiving conditions for life. Yeah, I mean, they're like, they're super extreme places, you know, so yeah, they have like the nurse plants in a lot of cases, um, you know, you can see that in a lot of different habitats, but also like nurse rocks or these rocky crevices are also really, you know, great places for them to become established. You know, the cactus roots alone couldn't actually get nutrients from, from basically pure rock. So they really need these fungi to kind of like go around and, and explore the sort of like little micro crevices you know, and help to sort of really get in there and dissolve and break that rock apart. So, yeah, the roots alone couldn't do it. Although they do actually sort of drill into a rocky crevice and kind hmm. of break it apart and fracture it as they expand and contract. But, yeah, when they team up with fungi and bacteria, they can really, um, you know, get a good foothold in that really difficult place, in that really, you know, xeric place. You know, it's funny, too, because I've seen countless cacti repotting videos and have gardened with cacti for, you know, ever since I've been gardening, essentially. And I never really put much thought into the fact that, you know, for a plant living in such a harsh, unforgiving climate where nutrients and water are in short supply, they really don't have like a large filamentous hairy root system. It seems to kind of be that like big tap root, some larger chunky roots, maybe some fine root biomass. But I never really put together the fact that that seems very disproportionate to the fact that everything is on starvation mode most of the time. So, you know, the idea of mutualisms at the root level, and, and it's cool to really think of that it's both bacteria and fungi, uh, make a lot of sense just given, you know, what I've seen of the, the, the anatomy of cacti roots. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And like they live in pretty much, you know, they live in like the rhizosphere, so like the outer layer of that uh, of that root. So it's kind of like acting like a bit of a, a transfer zone. So that's, um, you know, pretty incredible when you think about it. <laughs> right. And this whole idea of digesting or breaking down rock, I mean, to me, that is one of the coolest things that any organism can do because it shows you this true interface between the abiotic world, you know, minerals, essentially, and the yeah. living world that we, you know, our teeth are built out of minerals. We need minerals like salts and other things to to make our life possible. And so to know that this is like sort of a direct transfer I mean, it puts it into context, but it's also one of those things that still blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, it was totally mind-blowing, you know, because I'd really wondered that for, for quite a while, walking around in Habitat, you know. And when I made that, when I read about that and learned about that connection or that mutualism, it was just like, yeah, you know, they're, they're literally like dissolving and eating rocks, you know, <laughs> and and they're, and they're weathering them much more quickly, you know. 
I mean, of course, like, you know, lichen does that too, even uh, algae and, you know, all kinds of other microorganisms um, all over the place, not just in deserts, but in other habitats too. Sure. But I was even reading a stat that like the, the cryptogamic cover, like algae and stuff on rocks actually decomposes them <laughs> even 60 times faster than a rock without any cover on at all. It's just relying on like physical processes like Whoa. rain and wind and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, cacti and these uh, microorganisms are actually like converting the rock into, you know, usable substrate or soil, not just even for themselves, but even for other plants, you know? Yeah. So you've got... Yeah, a lot of cacti growing high up in the mountains in really rocky places. And then the lichen, the lichen and the cacti are sort of breaking it all up there. And then when it does rain, all of that uh, potassium and all the nutrients like run down into the alluvial plains where all the annuals germinate. So, you know, it's, it's also giving them or making those nutrients available to them as well, you know. Well, that really puts it into context, even in a bigger picture for sort of ecosystem health. But, you know, when we think of cacti and and the harsh conditions that most cacti, obviously not all grow in, you know, you think of heat and you think of drought, but that organic material, the the nutrient side of things is, is generally breezed over. And I've never been to the Atacama Desert, but I've been to deserts before. And when you look at sand and what these plants are growing in, it's not a forest soil. It's not a prairie soil. It's it's not even like potting soil. There is almost no organic <laughs> material in there. And so the facilitation right. aspect of these organisms living together, it's that trade-off that is so desperately needed, even if you know the growth rate of a cactus is so slow that they don't need the inputs that, say, like a banana plant would. They still need this stuff. Uh, yeah. But where, where's it supposed to come from when it's really not in the soil? <laughs> Well, I was even reading that um, in like coniferous forests and, and probably like most plants do it at some level, like with mycorrhizal fungi and stuff like that, like breaking down minerals in soil, like field spine and stuff like that. But, you know, like when you come into the desert, there's just uh, not an abundance of organic minerals that they can, that plants can get just at any stage. So they really have to make it for themselves. And like the Atacama is just just crazy. I mean, they do stuff like uh, astrobiology research and things here because of, you know, the bacteria and like the cryptogamic cover, the archaea, everything that lives in really extreme habitats, like in the salt flats, you know, and I mean, if you wind the clock back, like, you know, three billion years ago, whatever, this is what the entire planet probably would have looked like at, at some point, you know, um, just a whole heap of microbial life kind of just surviving there. But when, when plants kind of made the jump, uh, onto land, you know, then they were able to kind of actually use these microbes to actually get a foothold on life here on Earth. So along the Atacama Desert, is, it's it's a really interesting kind of transition zone between the ocean and the, the true Hyperara Desert, just a few kilometres further inland. So, yeah, it's just a really incredible mutualism, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, and it's not just cacti that do it. You know, the more I look into it, you know, <laughs> I've seen that agaves do the same thing. Uh, I mean, when I was in Madagascar, I was seeing pacopodiums growing out of like pure limestone cast. Uh, and it was just, you know, crazy. And also other euphorbias and all of that kind of thing. And so you, you, um, I'm not sure if there's been much research into that, but, you know, obviously they've got the same thing going on. I mean, how else could they, could they be doing that, you know? Yeah. And it's allowing them to, to kind of really exploit these really niche habitats, you know? So even in like really mesic, places so when i was in madagascar it was it was a real subtropical zone i mean there was forests and palm trees all around but then you get this really big rocky terrace or you know of limestone and then you get these this different floor appearing so they've got an advantage to establish themselves and colonize and otherwise in hospitable place with the assistance of of these microbes and actually in mexico i saw the same thing happening around monterey you know in another subtropical coniferous forest actually and yeah, we're looking for Mammalaria glassy and we're driving around and we're in like the type of locality and we're just like, how can they be growing? Like, this can't be right. Like we're in the middle of a forest and I'm like, let's go up on that mountain there and have a look in that rocky terrace up there. And sure enough, you know, on that rocky outcrop, there was the Mammalaria growing amongst the, the cracks in the rock, but also even amongst the moss and everything like that. So exploiting those places they can also obviously get access to to more light too because growing on the base of a forest floor they're not going to be able to photosynthesize much and probably just die off of starvation but <laughs> you know being able to grow in those uh xeric niche rocky outcrops they they also are getting light too so you know it's a great example of like habitat filtering and how the topography can can actually influence what 
species appeal there. Yeah, I, I think about that all the time out here because, you know, we have sort of these like deep, rich, loamy soil prairies, these tall grass prairies, but then you'll find areas where the glaciers just, for one reason or another, just dumped a ton of sand on the landscape and then nature just kind of took its course and you see how different the plant communities are and you start thinking about the shifts and like, you know, this, this competition versus facilitation sort of deal and everyone wants to kind of paint it as an either or, but it truly is the spectrum and, and sort of going back to what you were outlining there is I, you know, just the research I see from like grasslands is that when conditions tend to get really, really tough, when it's drought, nutrient poor, uh, you see a lot more of these mutualisms coming on board, at least in a prairie. And I'm assuming that, you know, just based on what you just outlined in your observations from many different arid climates that more than other places these sorts of mutualisms become desperately uh necessary i guess would be the best word in in these climates because how else are either of those organisms supposed to exist than to not team up with each other yeah exactly you know it's it's yeah they're both really helping each other out i mean the microbes could just do it on on their own but you know they're obviously um you know growing in more abundance like living in and with um, other plants too so you know it really is a, a proper mutualism not just one taking advantage of the other so just um it really changed my thinking and it really sort of even helped me to find like different plants in habitat by by knowing that you know you know right at the contact zone of different different rock types or topography you know appear different plants you know i mean mexico is a really great place to to go and see that because in the deserts you've got a lot of um uh, limestone and dolomite and you know really high high calcium containing uh, rocks and minerals even even gypsum so like the, the gypsum terraces um in the sierra madre oriental uh, kind of near to monterey is a really incredible place to go and um, and on those gypsum cliff faces you've got like Aztecian Hintonii, Geohintonia mexicana, but also like other bromeliads like Hectia species and uh, Selaginella and all kinds of different wow. stuff, which you know probably they've all got the same thing going on and they're able to actually um, you know survive in which could possibly be you know even contaminated soils for a lot of <laughs> other plants. And I was even reading that. Um, in a study that, that crystallized minerals like calcium oxalate, silicon dioxides and stuff have actually been found in cactus tissue, but really, really abundantly. And um, their ability to actually process these and uh, you actually find them on the epidermis and hypodermis of the cactus. So wow, um, like sweating out or excreting these crystallized minerals. So there could even be a way that they, they regulate those minerals within the plant which, you know, other plants might not do. They might sort of get an overabundance of those minerals and it could be toxic to them, but the cacti are actually sort of like, yeah, putting them in the epidermis. And, <laughs> you know, that's kind of really crazy wow. too, but that's that's a way that they can actually live in these places by regulating minerals like that. I mean, you know, some of the studies were saying that they, they also do it as like an anti-herbivory technique. Hmm. So like having those crystals in the, in, in the skin essentially is, you know, it can even be uh, put off for other anim- other bigger herbivores and animals from eating it because it's not too nice to, to chew on those kind of, you know, <laughs> crystals. But, um, yeah, there's different theories about it. But um, the regulation of the, the minerals in the plant makes a lot of sense because, you know, it could be toxic with an overabundance of them. But, um, oh, it's so interesting. Yeah. yeah, it just sounds like every new observation you make just unlocks this whole spider web of potential questions and to what degree <laughs> scientists have like explored it and looked at it in detail or even tested some of this stuff is, you know, it's a, it's kind of a crapshoot because a lot of these plants are growing in really inaccessible, hard to get to places that don't facilitate long term studies. So. Yeah, but thinking about, you know, even just beyond the basic needs of a plant, nutrients, water, access to those sorts of things, this idea that you can even go further with the evolutionary adaptations to just live in that soil, but then to use it to your advantage. I mean, we see hyperaccumulators in a lot of different sort of at least ultramafic or like heavy metal soils where they can concentrate it in their sap or in their tissues. And there does Uh appear to be an anti-herbivore deterrent, which, again, thinking about just the evolutionary impetus to live there let alone use it to your advantage opens up so many new questions for plants growing in all different types of soils and what's cool is a lot of the places you are exploring and looking at these plants geology is 
so much more obvious than it is, say, here, even in the prairies or in the eastern United States where forests dominate and kind of cap all of the fun geology until you get to like road cuts or something like that. It's just so much more apparent in these arid ecosystems. Yeah, and that's where it just really caught my attention, you know, and a lot of the habitats that I go into, you know, really dominated by lichens and obviously a lot of other different microbes too. But yeah, that's that's the beauty of a desert, you know, it's essentially just stripped bare of, of most other, you know, especially larger vegetation, you know, and you can just see the geology right there. And so that's really incredible. And I mean, it's also really important for conservation too. Well, here along the coast, there's a lot of igneous and metamorphic rock. But, you know, getting up into Mexico, especially when you've got really such high endonism in, in these, these rocky substrates. So like, for example, the gypsum or the dolomite or the limestone, you know, if you get people who are coming in doing mining and, and taking out even a small hill or even a mountain at times, which have this exposed geology, you know, that's essentially wiping out those endemics, you know, and then yeah. you've also got pollinators that have a specific pollinator syndrome with, with that. And so, you know, their food's also been taking from them too so it's a really important aspect in conservation and um, you know to consider you know leaving a good diversity of that exposed geology around and here in Chile I mean just in the region I live in in the Antofagasta region there are like 33 or 34 copper mines and it's actually home to the world's second biggest copper mine which is Escondida and it is just massive you know and it's just it's just crazy to think how we can eliminate a mountain, you know, uh, um, just yeah. in, a, in a matter of years. And it's literally taken millions of years for it to be created, you know, and it's just, it's just gone. <laughs> and it, it's literally going to take hundreds of thousands of millions of years to create that again, you know? Yeah. I mean, even if it does, it's such a quirk of whatever the continents were doing at the time and how geology yeah. just kind of plays itself out. Right. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. The other side of that is like all of those specific adaptations that it takes to live in these soils leads to that endemism because once a plant kind of goes in that direction, there's a strong chance that it really can't go in other directions, at least not in a lifetime that we can measure. Yeah. And so, yeah, it leads to all this endemism and then we come along and and muck everything up. But even just going back to what you were saying earlier about sort of the erosion of the rocks and the weathering goes down into these alluvial floodplains or, Uh um, you know, these areas farther down in elevation it just goes to show you how even in these again intense environments where very little life can establish and do well you know life is still extremely connected and we Mm. can't take any of this for granted because just because a cactus doesn't have this big butterfly associated with it or something charismatic that eats it doesn't mean it's not hosting microbes or smaller organisms pollinators that rely on it but also in the greater context of things lead to things like chemical weathering making phosphorus available for annuals down the line i mean indirectly and unknown to its own actions but it just goes to show you all of this is connected and the loss of organisms is so much more than just a number on a biodiversity chart yeah exactly i mean you know it's just crazy that interconnectedness with everything you know and <laughs> i mean it's you know easy for just to you know a cactus enthusiast like i was in the beginning coming here and just <laughs> You know, taking some photos of, of the cacti and habitat, but not really understanding the greater importance or context of them in their habitat and how they do connect with other things. I mean, they've even got, you know, symbiosis with, with beetles and flies, which <laughs> pollinate them. And, and like, you know, when the cactus is dying, they actually act as like a larval host plant. So the fly will come along and put its larva inside of it wow. um, and feed off all that decomposing tissue. And actually convert it back into usable nutrients for other plants as well, like the annuals <laughs> and, you know, but they've also got a pollination syndrome with them too. So, you know, they spend their entire lives flying around, you know, pollinating the, the cacti and even eating the flowers because that's the other thing I've noticed here is like the, the low level of vegetation, a lot of lizards and beetles actually, you know, feed on the flowers, not just the fruits, but the flowers as an emergency food source. So... There's this really kind of entire mini ecosystem happening within just a cactus. You know, you've got these microbes there, you've got these insects pollinating them, um, you know, you've got lichen even growing on them on the outside of them. So it's its own little kind of mini biosphere. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, when you think of the fact that these things are, you know, some of the largest life forms in the region for probably miles. Uh-huh. Yeah, You know, I mean, what other cho- choice does most life forms have? Of uh, It just seems like 
the concentration of life around life it's like this island in a sea of desert (laughs) yeah yeah exactly i mean you know you've got these little like fog oases forming but even up in the Andes, like cacti are often the, you know, the, the tallest, um, especially in the dry parts of the Andes on the Chilean side, cacti are the tallest plants in the habitat. You know, you've got these big, massive trichocereus, which can get up to like uh, eight meters tall, which is just massive. You know, it's, it's easily the tallest plant in the habitat. I mean, you come along the coast here and you've got some columnar cacti too, which get up to a couple of meters tall, but that's enough to still be the biggest and tallest plant in the habitat and they're often draped just in lichen especially along the, the coast here you know so yeah. you get all kinds of different uh you know lichen species growing on them so it's pretty it's pretty heavy stuff yeah you know, when you really sort of dive into it like it's really dense especially when you start considering the microbes and how they actually right you know interact with the cat i mean it's it's still being studied you know there are a few studies out um, about it, which which are pretty detailed, but you know they're still kind of working out exactly what bacteria or even archaea do what. You know, like they might even have something to do with them not freezing, or they might have like antifreeze carbohydrates, wow. but it could be something to do with the bacteria. Yeah, because like in the Altiplano, I mean, you're getting temperatures of like negative twenty degrees, you know, Ooh. which is you know, well, well, well below freezing. <laughs> Um, you know, and so how is a cactus, which is full of like, you know, water and mucilage and how is it not freezing, you know? Um, so, so it's got to have something else going on and where, whether it's antifreeze carbohydrates or some interaction with the, with the microbes too, you know, they, they play, they must play a different, a different role as well. And I mean, actually, even in the seeds, like one study was talking about how the, the bacteria and probably even fungi too are actually in the seeds. So when a cactus seed gets lodged into a rocky crevice, as soon as the climatic conditions are right, it germinates, bang, it's got everything it needs to get a foothold in there, you know, those bacteria and fungi just get to work and start, you hmm. know, dissolving that rock. So, <laughs> you know, that's just nuts. And I mean, even in cultivation, and I noticed this years ago and I never knew why, because um, I used to grow a lot of cacti in just pure crushed scoria, you know, and um, or, or even if you have, you know, other cactus mixes, but if you've got some 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 granite or some scoria mixed in there, when you go to transplant it, you know, the rocks are really glued to the roots. Mm. You know, you like you wash it off, and you try and clean all the old soil away, all the old rocks away, but they're literally just clinging on to these small stones. And I never sort of knew why that was. Sometimes I was like ripping them off and I'm like, nah, better just leave it. Yeah, but now I know that you've got, literally got those fungi, you know, kind of with their their talus or, or whatever, kind of like really, they're literally eating those rocks, you know. Yeah. That was just kind of really exciting for me to, to you know, make that connection. Sure. And what's cool is, you know, here's someone that grew up as a cacti hobbyist, a grower, someone that just appreciated cacti as species, as specimen plants. But, you know, your evolution has really tracked evolution of life and and cacti have connected you to the larger ecosphere of what's going on in the living world the biosphere of these extremely harsh unforgiving places and it's been sort of the key that's unlocked the door to a much bigger appreciation of life and evolution and diversity and and what it takes to survive i mean that's a pretty magical thing for Mm. anyone to have and it just goes to show you that you never know what that catalyst is gonna be Oh, like I would have never probably gone down this this um this wormhole or rabbit hole of you know <laughs> reading about geology <laughs> or microbes if, if it wasn't for trying to have a deeper understanding of of cacti and how they how they can survive in such extreme habitats. You know, uh, I mean, you know, my original interest in life sciences was in health. You know, that's what I went to uni to study. But yeah, <laughs> I didn't think that I'd sort of become so obsessed with you know. I mean, I was never interested in geology or anything like that before, but now they've become kind of like a really major thing that I've had to try and learn more about mm. to uh, to kind of grasp this this subject. You know, and and actually, the art. Uh, I don't know if you are you aware of the research that Karen Lloyd is doing. She's this microbiologist. Um, I feel like States, I, I've I heard the name, yeah, just from being around so many microbial biologists. Yeah, yeah. So she's a microbiologist and and she's got this really awesome TED talk called Mysterious Microbes. And she's been doing research uh, looking into microbes that live like up to five kilometers down into Earth's wow. crust. So, you know, they're not even photosynthesis. You know, they're, they're using like chemosynthesis to actually convert carbon-containing molecules into nutrients and stuff like that 
And, you know, her TED talk is just completely just something else, mind-blowing. You know, she's saying that something like 70% of the total microbes on Earth are actually, you know, kilometers below the surface, <laughs> um, you know. Jeez. So it kind of, it's pretty crazy. I mean, she's like still researching all this stuff from what I, from what I gather from her talk, you know, which is going to like, um, you know, springs and volcanoes and stuff like that to, yeah. to, you know, get access to some of these microorganisms. But, you know, they're drilling down kilometers below the surface to, to get access to th- some of this stuff too. So I feel like they're on the verge of really discovering stuff like, you know, the origins of like the last universal common ancestor and all oh, that geez. kind of stuff. They're just on this whole other, you know, <laughs> they're just on this whole other spectrum of like forefront of science and investigation of evolution, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's fascinating. It gives um, you goosebumps, yeah. even if it's not your specialty. And I mean, I, I remember going to a seminar a few years ago and it was a microbial biologist that was just doing sort of evolutionary relationships, what they called like functional taxonomic units, not even species within this stuff. And and they made this analogy that microbial biology technology has advanced far enough finally that they are at the point where botany was about 150 years ago, where it's it's just getting to describing some of these basic, like, what are they? Where do we draw the lines between, you know, again, these operational taxonomic units and, and what sort of functions are they playing out in their day-to-day lives? And you know, when you think about how far botany's come in 150 years, and a lot of that was minus the technology we have today, just thinking of where they're going, like you said, I mean, they are truly on a forefront of discovery that I think is going to revolutionize, you know, not only just our society, but life as we know it. Because if we're already finding this stuff with cacti and lichens and, and what's going on, you know, with a handful of organisms where we've decided to look and spend some time, yeah. imagine what we haven't seen or thought about yet. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just nuts, you know, like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in the Atacama Desert still, like, you know, they do um, research for Mars expeditions here because it's, you know, (laughs) the the topography is like, you know, basically the same, you know, and you've got stuff like archaea and bacteria and cryptogamic crusts and all that kind of stuff occurring there, Um, you know, so they come here to study it and they, they test their robes and everything out here before they go to Mars. So it kind of opens up a whole different other realm of like astrobiology or like interplanetary life you know when you start like looking at the stuff that that karen's doing with her research it's like i mean there has to be life existing in these microbial forms in other other planets too you know especially if they can grow like five kilometers (laughs) below the surface you know without sunlight you know it's just but it's just waiting for the right kind of climatic conditions to kind of advance it even more but yeah yeah Super interesting. I hope they just keep throwing probes at different planets. You know, within my lifetime, I'd really like to know that something else is living out there. But <laughs> coming back to the cacti in general and scaling up a little bit, um, I'm really curious. Uh, just because of like work by Jim Mouseth and uh, and others, have uh-huh. you noticed a lot of interactions with ants? Because learning that ants and and cacti have these weird mutualisms with each other kind of blew my mind because I can't think of an organism, a plant at least, that's better defended than a cactus, but here they are recruiting these tiny ants as bodyguards and doing it through like supplying them with water and nectar and, you know, they're getting potentially like cleaning benefits out of it. Have you, have you come across a lot of that in your explorations? Yeah, I've seen a lot of ants actually, and I've only just started looking into that myself. I mean, well, when you mentioned Jim Mouseth, um, I didn't realize that he was actually looking into that. But, you know, when I was first getting into cacti and everyone, you know, still I'm reading articles by him and he's like, he was like kind of like a true cactus explorer hero of mine when, when I was really getting into it. He wrote, he wrote this incredible book about his, you know, journeys in uh, Argentina and Bolivia and Peru and stuff. And, and that really inspired me a lot too. Nice. But, but yeah, um, you know, quite often I'll photograph a cactus uh, flower or something. And sometimes I'll notice an ant like sort of guarding the flower or like kind of going out of the flower. And sometimes I notice it afterwards when I review the photos but yeah, what you've said there about cleaning and stuff like that too, that's that's also really interesting. But yeah, they definitely, I would imagine, be exploiting some kind of um, nutrients from from the cactus too, just like any any of the other insects. But yeah, what is Jim researching that? Have you read something about that? Yeah, I mean, he's done it with others and I can you know, even link the paper for people to want to read it themselves. But uh, yeah, they've looked at sort of like these extra floral nectaries that um, certain cacti mm-hmm. like pharaoh cactus have. 
and uh, yeah. maybe even a kind of serious. But regardless, the ants are using that as a food source. And then I guess as the conditions become harsher over the summer, uh, they, they switch to more. It's just a water resource, right? Because cacti are these reservoirs or oases right. of, of water concentration in the desert. So there's this idea of like back and forth with they get food and water and then the ants protect them from potential herbivores. But they even went as far as to say that because ants are always cleaning themselves with antimicrobial fluid that they could potentially be getting rid of pathogenic microbes and fungi that could cause infection on the epidermis or get into wounds on the cactus. And it's just it's cool. I think it's like still very early days in terms of like describing some of these interactions. But it's just another layer of complexity to an, uh, organisms that we kind of just take for granted as being like, ah, no, they can take care of themselves. It's like, no, they, they need each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's, I, that's crazy. I didn't realize that, that some cacti have extra floral nectaries. I didn't either. Um, that's really cool. I just didn't really even think that I was only sort of just learning about that in other plants, but yeah, I had not made that link with cacti. That's so crazy. Yeah. Apparently I, I, I want to say it now it's been a while since I've read it, but like in the aerials where the spines emerge, there's like a few different yeah. ways they can do it. But some of them are even modified spines that just look like these weird blunt lumps uh, at the base of the other actual okay. protective spines. And they, they do exude nectar and water. Wow. Mind blown once again. <laughs> wow, I did not know that. Well, the cool thing too is he's got pictures of this stuff in this paper that I read. And so it's it's like both descriptive, but you get to see it and you're like, oh, wow, that's, I'm going to go look for that. And so now every time I see a pharaoh cactus, a large one especially, I'm like, where are they? Where are they? <laughs> Yeah, wow, that's that's incredible. Yeah, Jim has done so much work. He, he has been on the forefront of cacti research for, for decades, you know, and the work that he's done is incredible. You know, he's he's a huge inspiration, you know, and I've yeah. read a ton of his stuff. Trying um, to get him on the podcast, but I think he's a little hesitant to public speaking. But, well, you know, it, t- it takes time and I respect that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, he's written so much stuff, you know, and he's got, um, you know, he's got, a, he's got a, a great book or a couple of great books. He's written books on botany too. I'm pretty sure. But um, when you were saying about how the, the ants could actually excrete something uh, that affects the cactus, it actually just reminded me of um, um, Tillandsia. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of different habitats I've been to, I've noticed Tillandsia growing on cacti. Nice. Um, you know, and they're considered a, you know, an epiphyte. They, they grow a lot on the Eulichnia cacti on the coast here in Chile, but I've seen them on Trichosirius in Argentina, but also um, brown ingia species up in Peru. And actually, I noticed that um, on the brown ingia, especially in Peru, the plants that had Tillandsia growing on them looked like they were really suffering a lot. They looked really crappy, huh. you know, and, and actually whether Tillandsia was um, attaching itself to the cactus it was all kind of like scarred up and everything like that and i actually was looking into it a bit more and some of them were actually considered to be mild hemiparasites so really like the root hairs that they used to attach themselves to the plant or the rock or whatever uh, can actually go into the cactus like a few cell layers and could be actually exploiting nutrients like well well, mostly water probably because the cactus cortex is mostly for that you know obviously they don't have like a not a proper parasite that's got um, anything to actually get right in there and reach the vascular candy sure, of, sure. of the cactus, but they're still getting moisture and, um, you know, somehow opening the cactus up to to infection. And then, of course, you know, Tillandsia have also got, you know, bacteria, which are fixing nitrogen, of course, because <laughs> they live on, you know, air. <laughs> yeah. And, but, you know, they've probably got other bacteria too, which are obviously different from the cacti bacteria that could even have fungi too, who knows. But when they're actually um, breaking that epidermis, those different bacteria and fungi could actually be acting as a parasite, you know, I mean, as a pathogen, sorry, for sure. uh, for the cactus, um, you know, and infecting it. So, Whew. I mean, some of the cacti don't look too, too affected by, you know, negatively by Tillandsia growing them, but others really, really do. That's wild. I never even would have thought of that. But then again, I've never seen a Tillandsia growing on a cactus. So, you know, again, until yeah, you, you, well, you're seeing these things, you don't you don't know. And that's that's the other great thing about the power of observation is you're out there. You're just love looking at this stuff. You're exploring. You're seeking it out. But you never know what the next observation is going to lead you down in terms of like a new discovery, a new question. And and I just mm-hmm. I love and I'm going to say it time and time again on this podcast, like the need to just get out, observe and, and take pictures, especially nowadays and, and just, you know, be in nature and, and not be afraid to ask questions about what you're seeing and why you're seeing it. 
Yeah, exactly. Because like a lot of this stuff that I've been looking into, it's very still very superficial, the research, and it hasn't been really thoroughly researched yet. There's not a whole lot of data, you know, like people have been making the same connections and links, but it hasn't really sort of been properly fully understood yet. But yeah, like, you know, a lot of these habitats are really remote. I mean, you know, for starters, it's, you know, South America, but then, you know, you go into some of these, especially Alpine regions and, you know, people don't like to be in altitude, you know, it's pretty uncomfortable. (laughs) People don't like to be isolated in the middle of nowhere, you know, and um, I mean, the weather can get pretty crazy too. You know, some countries in Central America or some islands in the Caribbean have been like overstudied because then, you know, the nice places to go on holiday to, <laughs> right, right. But, you know, you go to like really remote parts of the Andes and you know, isolated places like the Atacama Desert. And yeah, it takes a bit more incentive for some people to sort of get out there and look at this stuff. So, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's you just never know what you will find, you know, Um I was reading an article somewhere online that like some naturalists went down this, this valley and discovered like, I don't know, 12 new different species, some plant species, but also a new bird and some insects and stuff. And wow. it's just like, what? And yeah, because, you know, people just don't go to certain, you know, some of these countries very often, you know, really do that research. Yeah. Go back to what you said about sort of the hyper endemism, especially in some of these arid areas where geology can really play a massive role in isolation becomes you know, all too easy when there's a ton of topography and just a lot of unfavorable conditions in between. It's not that people even haven't gone looking. It's just, have they gone down that particular valley? I mean, just the isolated aspect of some of these populations, you know, that in and of itself makes it hard to, for at least science to catch up to knowledge of what's growing out there. Yeah. Yeah. And just like the access, you know, like sometimes I drive along the Chilean coast and I'll notice you know, really nice um, cap of clouds just on the top of this this mountain, you know, and just like, it's just, I'm like, oh, there must be something growing up in there. There's got to be like some like little fog oasis going on, but it's just like, how would you get there? I mean, for a lot of these places, especially in the extreme north of Chile, the, the coast is, it's really abrupt, the rise of that coastal range from the subduction of the Nazca plate. It's just, it's like vertical, you know? And so you have to kind of access it from up the top, you know, inland. But even that can still be pretty sketchy and dodgy. I've seen some papers of people researching and there's photographs of them with like full professional climbing gear on, you know, harnesses, helmets, the whole works. Right. (laughs) I mean, you know, we've got like drones now, but like jetpacks would be cool. Yeah, we'll get there. You know, but yeah, like there's definitely, you know, there's a lot of point endemics uh, along um, the coast here, you know, along the Atacama. Yeah. Um, I mean, just think of the filter effect of like, okay, how many scientists A, have the wherewithal or or even just any botanist or any person interested to have the time and wherewithal and the resources to get to some of these spots, but then also the skill set needed to, okay, well, I didn't hire a climbing expert to go down there and look at this stuff. I have to do it, you know? So it's like... This yeah. stuff is just, it narrows the window even more and more and more every time. And, you know, we can think of all of the weird things just tucked into completely inaccessible areas where literally no human has ever gone just because if they, there's no reason to. And if they did, they'd probably die. So it's not worth the effort. <laughs> yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, you get stuff that's endemics like vertical, you know, cliff walls and vertical mountain faces, you know, I've seen like carnivorous plants hanging off the side of just, you know, insane places. I mean, like ferns, all kinds of little, you know, chasmophytes and stuff. I mean, they've probably all got that same symbiosis going on too. I mean, obviously carnivorous plants get nutrients from insects and stuff like that. They're kind of, you know, doing it maybe a different way, but, you know, they're still growing in these places, you know, which are just so difficult to access. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing to think about. And I mean, what's great is people like you that have this passion and are, you know, turning it into a career to just be able to go out and photograph and post this and share it with the world for people like myself that don't get to travel as much or, you know, don't have any means to do it. You're bringing this to them. And then, who knows what your pictures can unlock some like you said you don't even notice some of the stuff that you're taking pictures of until you blow the picture up on your computer screen you go oh i didn't even see that there but how many new yeah. things are being discovered on iNaturalist or facebook just because someone posted a picture and you may not know what you're seeing but someone else might catch on to it and it's all freely accessible and we can all see it and uh i think it just like a widens the appreciation of this stuff but also offers new opportunities for discovery and collaboration too yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, iNaturalist has been a really great tool to use. And, you know, it's a great way to share your stuff with, you know, researchers all over the world. 
And yeah, actually something really interesting happened to me last year. I uploaded a, a photo of a beetle um, on a copiapoa cactus flower, um, pollinating it. And actually had a researcher from um, the, the Conception University here in Chile contacting me. And he's like, hey, you know, could you send me those pictures? I'm like investigating this this beetle and i'm like yeah sure and he goes actually you know this is actually a new species like we've actually been looking into it they're writing a paper on it but they didn't have habitat photos of it so it was actually it was actually classified as um ectogonia darwinii which was you know from material that was you know collected by charles darwin and then um this is they've actually named it uh, ectogonia superba and it's actually just um, published that paper in um, December last year. And I've written, I've just written, and it was in Spanish, his article, and I've just written a small one in English for the American Society about the interaction between that ectogonia beetle and the, and the copiapoa. But yeah, like he, he wanted the photos from Habitat because even though he's in Chile, he's like, I'm busy with work down here. And, and you know, can you send me the photos and I'll, you know, you know, put them in the article. Yeah, sure. So there's been social media, but not just social, like your apps like iNaturalist is just such a great way to connect right. all kinds of different people, you know. I mean, I this all just came about for me just liking going out and taking photos. <laughs> right, you know? right. Um, and yeah, just, just a basic interest in cacti, but you know, it's great to to know that I can actually help people, you know, too, or yeah, connect with or network with all kinds of other different people. So that's amazing. Super interesting. Yeah. Naturalist is incredible. It's really such a great app. Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, especially doing it in house. I mean, there is a a Chilean expert that just couldn't get out into the field or, you know, might've not been in the right place at the right time to snap a photograph. And there you go. It's this beautiful collaboration you never intended on, but it's there and it's made possible because we can connect in this way for all of the failings of social media. There's a lot of good that's coming out of it too. And it's, it's opening doors and crossing borders and, and really kind of uniting a lot of special interests that desperately need to talk to each other. Um, but on the yeah. same side, I mean, the other part of it is I'm really encouraged by a lot of the effort you're doing against poaching. And that's another aspect mm-hmm. of social media that desperately needs you know, more eyes on the ground. And, and, you know, like you've been pushing for Instagram, for instance, to report, you know, sort of wildlife crimes that you see on Instagram, because unfortunately, with the rise of houseplants and specialist collectors, (laughs) cacti are some of the most heavily poached organisms on the planet. And just Again, couching this in every bit of discussion we've had so far, it's not, well, there's a lot of them. So taking a couple here and there, it's like, no, these are oases of life in a very yeah. hostile environment. And everyone that's lost, you're losing so much more than even just the plant, which I obviously really care about the plant. But, you know, think of all the yeah. microbes and insects and everything else that relies yeah. on this stuff, this dynamic ecology that's just being ripped out of the ground because a specialist collector wants a nice big uh, areocarpus or something like that. Yeah, it's nuts. And like, you know, the extent as to which it happens is really just mind boggling. I mean, some people kind of just kind of brush it off as like, oh, you know, it's just a a plant here and there, you know, which if that was the case for, you know, someone who was wanting to produce seeds or something like that, then you can sort of, you know, maybe justify, rationalize it. But we're talking about like in Chile here, like well, Ariocarpus too, up in Big Bend National Park. There was an article about that. Yeah. Like literally subpopulations are being eliminated. <sighs> you know, like people go in and there's, you know, multiple people going along just digging them up and just filling up bags with these things. And like, you know, there was a report last year that 4,000 copiapoa from Chile were found in a shipping container in Italy, wow. you know. And that's just that was just one event, you know, but they're, they're, they're appearing in Asia, you know, they're appearing all over the world. And when you start to really add it all up, or when you think about it too, like the age of a plant, like it could be a polar in habitat. Yeah. I mean, it can literally take decades to produce its first flower, you know? So when a mature plant is being taken, which could easily be a hundred years old, I mean, you're taking away food, you know, the flowers, I mean, the pollen, it's the base of the food chain, you know? Yeah. And so if insects aren't getting that, then other animals aren't getting that. And, you know, so it goes, but I'm really trying to get people to, well, I'm trying to further my understanding of how they, their importance here in habitat and how their ecological, you know, value and what it is, you know, and trying to educate people about that as to hopefully, you know, that might be some sort of a, deterrent you know for people to actually stop and think about that you know they actually have an importance it's not just a cactus growing in a desert you know it's it's doing all this stuff as well and it's um other things relying on it too it's complex and it's difficult to sort of i mean you know it's been complex for me to try and understand it so someone who's just sort of you know interested in cacti because of their you know 
aesthetics or something like that it's it's difficult difficult to kind of break through you know people are not so interested in their ecological importance in habitats so yeah that's 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 a tough thing yeah, it's yeah. a shame, and I'm happy people are getting into plants in a big way. But you, you, you will hope that it also comes with an appreciation, and not just sort of an aesthetic collector sort of mentality. Mm. I mean, trust me, I'm a plant collector. You should see my apartment; it's it's borderline an issue. But you know, <laughs> it's always ethically sourced, seed grown, nursery propagated stuff, and you know, so much of it is just truly the appreciation of what the species is and where it's come from, yeah. and, and the 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 way yeah. it evolves, and that's what's great about what you're doing with. Cactus Explorer and and just any of your communication, your writings, your photography. It's a wonderful interface between the science that you're learning that isn't always accessible, even if it isn't hidden behind a paywall. Not everyone's trained or understands how to read through the jargon and maths to get to oh, the knowledge, yeah. you know. It's and heavy. so this interface yeah. that you have of of you know just sowing some appreciation and putting these organisms into context. I mean, just how valuable mm -hmm. it is to see where these plants come from. You know, I think it's a step in the right direction. And then you can add these educational. I love those infographics you've been coming up with that are teaming up with. I, I don't yeah. know who you're working on those with, but they're yeah, so and Alex Gonzalez. Yeah, yeah. They're so yeah. valuable, man. I mean, it's so great to have those put out into the world and that, you know, obviously you're doing well with it. You're, you've grown so much over the years since even we last talked and you know, you're going to continue to do that. So, you know, I mean, just in that aspect, what you're doing for cacti, placing them into context and showing this appreciation of them as organisms. I think goes a long way, especially now because a lot more people are looking at plants like cacti and Googling them and, and trying to figure mm -hmm. out what they are. So the more content like that versus the cheap sort of uh, fast food nonsense of the houseplant communities that often is out there is so valuable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to do more with it. You know, I've got a couple more talks to cactus societies coming up. So trying to branch out a bit more there. Um, I think that's a really good place to start, you know, because people are really interested in the plants are going to be watching that uh, kind of content, you know. Um, but yeah, the infographics are good. Looking at, you know, other things you can do too and talking with um, cactus societies. And a lot of cactus societies are really, really big on conservation. They're really keen to focus more on that, about the educational aspect and uh, and all that kind of thing too. And they've, they've expressed a lot of interest as well. So you know, yeah, it's it's just about um, persisting with it, you know, and trying to create information in different formats and all kinds of things so people can can learn more about them, you know. And so, yeah, it's kind of like I'm learning something and then I'm trying to teach, you know, <laughs> other people about it too. So, Would you say yeah. it's a mutualistic endeavor? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I, I, love, I love talking about it, you know, and I love sharing the passion with people. It can just sometimes be, you know, I think any work in conservation is very, you know, it has to be a lot of passion there or you know, sure. any sane person just wouldn't do it because, you know, it can, it can be pretty depressing, you yeah. know, to be honest. Uh, so, you know, you have to um, remain positive and just stand up for what you believe in, essentially, as cliche as that sounds. But, yeah, yeah it's true. Truer more yeah. now than ever, man, <laughs> especially <laughs> yeah. the culture of some yeah. of our, yeah. With that in mind, Stefan, I mean, thank you for talking to us about this, but where can people find you? How can they find out more about, you know, where you're going to give talks or when things finally kind of open up again and we can safely travel, where they can find your tourism business? I mean, where do, where do people go to find out everything you're doing? Okay, so I've got a website, cactusexplorer.com, and on there I, um, I talk a little bit, little bit about habitat and I've got, you know, the tours that I offer on there and stuff like that. But also on, and it's got links to my social media on Instagram, which is Cactus Explorer, and then on Facebook, Cactus Explorer too. We're wanting to uh, start doing some more educational videos on YouTube, but um, I haven't got a channel up and running yet, but um, I'm working on that. Nice. But uh, yeah, also do, yeah, talks to, I've done an, a couple to the British Cactus and Succulent Society, the Australian Society, and I've got one coming up for the American Society too uh, in a month's time. So uh, yeah, I usually post about that stuff on my stories or I should post more about it um, on, on Facebook and, and other places too. So yeah, that's where you can find me. And uh, yeah, I hope to you know keep doing this uh, for as long as I can and branch out into some different areas too. So yeah. 
Excellent. Well, I mean, I love your content and everyone needs to go flock to it. I'll put up links so everyone can find it really easily. But again, thank you, Stefan, for talking to us about this, for kind of blowing the lid off of some of this uh, cactus mutualistic interactions and the potential for so much more discovery and collaboration on it. It's really exciting. And I'm, I'm just stoked about what you're doing and, and how you're doing it. So thank you again and keep it up. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. No, yeah, there are there are many more other mutualisms. You know, there's other stuff I've been looking into too. But yeah, conversation for another day. It just goes on and on. <laughs> yeah, man, you're welcome back anytime. So just uh, obviously, you know where to find me. Keep in touch and uh, hang in there. Stay healthy and just enjoy what you're doing because uh, you're doing great stuff. Thanks. You too, Matt. I love the in defense of plants stuff. It's oh, really thanks. incredible. Congrats on your book, by the way, too. Appreciate really that. Awesome. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's a weird and huge milestone that I still haven't uh, really fully wrapped my own head around. So I appreciate that. Yeah. No, that's really awesome. And you know, everything you're doing is really educational and informative too. So thanks. yeah, I really, really love it too. Hey, we're in this together. Yeah, for, man. <laughs> for the plants, for the plants. <laughs> yeah. Love it. All right. Cheers. Cheers, man. All right. How amazing was that? And like I said in the beginning, we only scratched the surface of these interactions. I'm sure there's so much more out there, and we're going to have to get Stefan back on to talk in more detail about some of the amazing interactions cacti undergo with different walks of life. No organism operates in a vacuum, and that's why I love being an ecologist. You get to study how organisms interact, and that, to me, is some of the most fascinating stuff out there. Of course, you can check the show notes for this episode to find all of the relevant links as well as to follow Stefan on his various social media accounts. I highly recommend it. He puts out amazing content, beautiful images of cacti growing and living where they evolved to be. And uh, there's also a heavy conservation component over there, which I super appreciate. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast and you want it to continue to have a future, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. There's so many great kickbacks over there, including multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month that only the patrons get to listen to. But I mean it when I say I could not be doing this without my patrons. So thank you to everyone that supports the show each and every month. You can also pick up merch over at teespring.com slash stores slash plants or stickers over at indefensiveplants.com slash shop. I will put up links in the show notes for those as well. So you don't have to go remembering this or writing these links down, but please consider picking those up as well. It's a great way to help support the show. Otherwise, stay tuned. Hit that subscribe button because, as always, there are so many great conversations just over the horizon, and I'm excited to share them with you. But until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.